The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're preaching through our core values, and so tonight we're going to look at, <clears throat> primarily we're going to look at Ephesians 5. We're going to start in Genesis 2, but um, we're going to be talking about the uh, whole category of what does it mean for men and women to relate together, how did God design men and women, um, and so let me ask for God just to bless this time, for us to have his spirit, to hear from his word, um, because I think we need God's help. Father, we ask that you would be with us now. Would you send your spirit that we would learn from your word together, that we would treasure Christ together, that we would uh, grow in your word together. Um, and Father, I ask that you would help us as men and women to glorify you together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning I was at Starbucks, and here I am trying to get ready for this sermon on men and women and how we relate together. And um, oh, let's see. Hold on, we're not going to get there. We're not, we're not there yet. We, <laughs> that's, that's the first point. See, I'm, I'm really bad with sermon titles, so I don't even know what the sermon is called. I, but um, so this morning I was at Starbucks, and here I am trying to get ready for this sermon on men and women. And uh, I get in this discussion with the baristas behind the bar about, like, you know, like, men have it better because of this, and women have it really hard because of that. And it was just funny to me that here I am sitting in Starbucks trying to get my sermon ready for tonight, and I engage in this conversation with these, these friends of mine at Starbucks because everybody thinks about men and women, and everybody thinks about how men and women, you know, relate to each other. You know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Everybody has an opinion about how men and women relate. It's always just kind of something that's uh, on the forefront of our minds. Um, it was a mildly humorous conversation, and I was eagerly trying to back out of it as much as I could. <laughs> but it was—it uh, just brought to mind, you know, we think about this category a lot, and we have a lot of cultural assumptions about it. it we are raised in a culture to have certain assumptions. Even if you're raised in a church, you're raised to have certain assumptions about it. And so we want to ask the question, what does God have to tell us? Well, how does God want to say about the category of how men and women are designed? God made us. God put us together? How did God design us to glorify him? How did God design men and women to relate to each other? How did God design this whole thing called humanity to work? How is, how is this supposed to work? And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. And we're going to look at God's word because I want us to be focused on what God's word has to say. I don't want this to be about my opinion. I don't want this to be about your opinion. I want this to be, how can we root this in God's word? And so I recognize at the forefront, as we're starting to look at God's word on this very category of gender and sexuality, and what is it, men and women, how do we relate, um, that it can, it can be very tense, that it can raise a lot of questions, um, that it's a contentious issue today, and certainly, in a certain sense, uh, the culture has forced us to clarify how we think about this. I mean, as we were, uh, today, you know, we have all these things going on with gender and sexuality and marriage and all these different categories, and the culture hasn't forced a church to change its position, but it has forced us to clarify how we think about this. And I think it's good. I think it's good for us to have to clarify how we think about this, because we don't want to bring 1950s, you know, leave it to beaver type assumptions into how we think about what does it mean for men and women to relate. And so, um, and so for that, we need God's word and how to think about this. And so what we're going to do Typically, the way I want to preach sermons is I want to preach in such a way that we get practical applications for how we do things, and that tend to, those are tend to be called practices. But tonight, what we're going to do is we're really going to focus in and zero in on the principles of Scripture. What, is, what are the guiding principles of what Scripture has to say about this? And we're going to kind of be open-handed about the practices here. So what I mean by, pr by principles, what are the core convictions, what are the core realities of what Scripture has to say about this? And the principles are the varying ways that we each apply them. And so, if you think about it like this, if you're driving on the highway, the, the road, sti road signs for where you want to get are the principles. You want to stay focused on what's, what's going ahead. The practices are kind of a bit of like the guardrails of the highway. You don't, you don't get to where you want to go by watching the guardrails. You, know, you, you don't get to where you go by figuring out all the practices that are going to keep you in. You want, to, you want to focus on the principles. You want to focus on what God has said. And then we're going to work about, we're going to talk, and we can have discussions about the principles of how we apply this. And so with that in mind, one of the things I do want to say is that um, 
if you have questions as we're talking through this category, if you have concerns or objections, I want you to write those down, and I'm going to, we're going to, we can do a Q&A after the service about this. What's engaged? I might not get to all the hard questions. I might not get to all the, the sticky questions and troubling concerns that you might have about this. If you have questions, I want us to be able to engage on that, that after the service. So this isn't like a direct monologue from God where you just have to kind of accept it and suck it up. So I want this to be a conversation where we can talk about this. Okay, guys? So uh, I want you to have that in mind. So what I want us to land on tonight, here's what I want us to land on. Through all this, I want us to see that gender is defined and shaped by Jesus Christ in the gospel. Gender is defined and shaped by how God has revealed himself in the Son of God submitting himself to the Father's will to die for sinners. So I want us to see gender and sexuality shaped by that. And I want us to, the payoff that I want us to have, that we, we can trust this good design of God for manhood and womanhood because it not only displays the gospel, but our hope for change is rooted in Jesus Christ himself. So I want us to see that God has designed men and women to complement each other well, to complement each other in ways that are good, and that men, men and women are designed by God in this relationship, and it's good by God's design, and that it's not a contentious us versus them relationship. So, so like I said, that's where I want us to end up. That's where I want us to land. And so if you have questions, please note those. Write them in. At some point, I want us to figure out how to get like a text thing so you can like text your questions in so they can be anonymous. Um, <laughs> so you don't even have the awkwardness of asking questions. We can just do anonymous questions. But just have that in mind, okay? Yeah, yeah, it'd be great. I've seen it. Yeah, I, yeah, they do that. You can like text it in and it's like it shows up and so it's anonymous and all that stuff. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, I mean, maybe when we get bigger, anonymous will be more important. But right now, it'd be kind of like of the thirty people that are here, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So the first thing, uh, if you have your Bibles, that's great. We're just going to be up on the screen. The first thing we want to look at: man and woman are defined and created good by God. So we're going to look at Genesis two. And we're not going to get into questions about creation and how God did all this. This point is very clear. God created man and woman. And so we're going to look at this. So verse 18 through 22. So this is God has just created everything. And uh, he's commissioned Adam to rule and subdue the earth. And then the Lord said... It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to, I'm sorry, yeah, out of, and brought them before the man so that he would see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds in the heaven of the heaven and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. And while he slept, took out of his rib, the clo- took, took one of his ribs, out one of his ribs, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had made from the man, he made into a woman and brought, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So we can't do like a full discussion about this passage, but I just want to make a few observations here to kind of to ground us in what God has done and how he's made Adam and Eve, man and woman. And that the first thing I want to note is that uh, God's design of man and woman are good. God designed both men and women, and they're both good. They're designed by God uh, to have their differences. So they're designed by God to have physical differences. They're designed by God to have creational differences. But they're designed by God, and they're both called good. They're both called good, and they reflect God's image, which I think is important because we tend to have this view that like everybody who's not like us is wrong or weird or should be suspicious. 
And that can take on this notion of like, you know, if you're a man, women are weird, and if you're a woman, men are weird. And that might be true, but uh, at the core of who we are, the, the core of who God has created us, men and women are good and designed to be good for each other. So then the second thing I want us to see is that God creates Adam first and Eve second. And this is important to the narrative uh, because uh, it does establish um, some, dis- some distinctions between men and women. What God designed is he said Adam is created first and he gave the commission of this great reality, this great mission for Adam to rule and subdue the earth, which I don't know about you, but I don't imagine that the Garden of Eden took over the whole earth. So Adam had this huge mission to make the earth reflect the glory of God, to extend the image of God through creation. Uh, And the reality is Adam could not do it on his own. And so what God does is he says here, okay, I'm going to, Adam, this is all to help you see you need a helper. Adam, you cannot do this on your own. You're not designed to be able to do this on your own. You need a helper. And so here's the problem with the word helper. Helper in our lingo today has this kind of like uh, negative connotation or a bit of like a servile connotation. Like, somebody's going to be my helper. Can we get the help to clean the house? You know, let's get the help to do whatever. Like, it's like a paid servant angle. What's actually used here, the word that God uses here to describe helper is a word that God uses for himself when he says, I'm going to be your helper and your guide. I'm going to be your strength and your support. It is a very profound word that communicates like this necessary component, this necessary ally, this necessary component to what it means to, to help somebody. So it's not just kind of like, uh, well, Adam really could have done it on his own, but God's going to make Eve to kind of help him you know, get the flowers arranged correctly. Like, that's, not, that's not the view here. Adam cannot do this on his own. God's called Adam to lead in this mission, but he can't accomplish it without this necessary ally in the mission. He needs a helper. So this helper, the, the word that God uses to describe himself is the word that God uses to describe Eve. And so he creates Eve second, not to subvert Adam's leadership, but to accompany and help his leadership as he is seeking to accomplish God's mission. And the created order is important here because throughout Genesis 1 and 2, you have uh, night and day, dry land and the seas. They're all designed to complement each other on the different days. And then here we come to Adam and Eve. Man is called to lead. The woman is called to submit and support. They're designed to, su- to complement each other. It's not an, an image of animosity because the night and day aren't at animosity with each other. The sea and the land aren't at animosity with each other. Adam and Eve are not designed, though different, they're not designed to be at animosity towards each other. So they're designed to complement and to uh, help each other. And then the last thing I just want to comment on here is their bodies are created different because their bodies do not lie to them. Their bodies are designed to reflect the role that God has created them for. Men and women are designed differently, and their bodies don't lie to them about their gender. Their, their bodies don't lie to them about the role that God has called them to, to fulfill. Their bodies are designed as good to reflect God's glory. And this design of gender and sexuality in the distinct, distinctly male and masculine body and feminine and feminine body um, are designed by God to be good and to reflect his glory as they complement each other together. So I... I know this is going to raise questions. This is going to touch on some nerves for a lot of our cultural issues today. But let's look at what God's word has to say to us together, and we can talk about those questions. I hope we get to some of them. Um, but I think it's, it's incredibly helpful that at the heart of this, God has designed this marvelous relationship between two people who are very different and yet very similar to each other as the core of human identity. It's not... Uh, God didn't say, rule and subdue the earth, and then he gave 50 engineers to accomplish the problem. I'm very grateful for engineers. <laughs> I've worked with a lot of engineers. But he did not give you know, a bunch of men the, the charge to rule and subdue the earth. He gave men, he gave Adam and Eve, at a relationship level, the commission to accomplish his purposes. So that's, that's what we see in Genesis 2. And then we're going to move into Genesis 3, because we have to start... If we're going to start talking about you know, gender and sexuality, we have to start, what's the creation, and then how does sin come in and break all this up? So the second thing 
men and women are broken by the fall in different ways. So we're going to look at Genesis 3, and what happens here, we're just going to kind of skim over, just kind of remind you what happened with, Gen- with uh, Adam and Eve and the serpent <clears throat> and Satan in the garden. The, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> you know, basically Adam and Eve are hanging out one day in the garden, the serpent comes, the tree of knowledge, good and evil, entices Eve with, hey, God's holding out on you. This really is, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is really good. You should eat it. She takes a bite. She hands it to Adam, who's standing there with her. And Adam eats. They disobey God. So I, I just want to note here, you know, it's interesting. So we're talking about this creation order. God creates the creation, and then he creates Adam and Eve to rule and subdue the earth. And then what happens in the, in the fall, the story of the fall, is that the creation comes up against Eve, and Eve accepts the lie, and then Adam accepts the lie, and then they rebel against God. So it's a reversal. It's a breaking of the creation order. And what really should have happened here at the beginning is, is Adam should have crushed that snake from the first. So before we start talking about what men and women should do, we need to see how Adam, at the very beginning, failed in his call for leadership. His call of leadership was to protect and rule and subdue the earth. Because he failed at his charge to protect his wife, because he failed at his charge to protect the earth, the curse and all the things that come out of that come from Adam himself. So the curse happens, and here's what God says about the curse. So Genesis 3, Genesis 3, 16 through 19. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you, ha- you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you ter- return to the ground. For out, of you, um, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. So, at the base level, what happens here is that Eve, who was created by God, excuse me, to support her husband's leadership, is now... The curse of sin is that she will be against her husband's leadership. And Adam, who is created to love and to nurture and to protect, will experience opposition. Opposition from himself, opposition in his family, opposition from creation. Things are really bad. I mean, this is at, this, at the core of nature. This is where all of the abuse, all of the violence, all of the animosity between men and women This is where it all begins. This is where all the abuse, all all the horrible, horrible things that men have done to women, all the ways that men have abused and taken advantage of, all the sin that you are well acquainted with, this is where it all begins. This is where it happens. Thank you. Yeah. There's 99 other, 999 other cups back there. Just taking a thousand, one of the a thousand. This is where it all begins. This is, this is where it all begins to go wrong. And all the ways that women have sinned against men, and whatever ways that they have done that, um, this is where it all begins. And I think that it's helpful to remember that because God did not design men and women to be against each other. God did not design men and women to be so different, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, that they can't communicate on the same page, that they can't understand each other, that they can't relate and bless and love each other. That, all the ways that men and women sin against each other and abuse each other, it stems from the fall, from the inbreaking of sin, from the corruption of sin in us, not from the creation design. I think that's helpful to remember. It's going to help, it's going to help us in terms of our principles, keeping on the road going straight forward, Keeping that in mind is going to help us walk the road forward. It's going to help us avoid errors, I think. 
And so, so I think it's helpful to, to keep that in mind as well, because as we're going to be talking about this stuff, I, know, I don't know whatever the words headship and whatever the words submission evoke in you, but the reality is that whatever those have evoked in you, those are incredibly painful things that the Lord cares about, and those are incredibly painful things that the Lord himself is proactively seeking to redeem. Um, but they're not, we don't want to attribute those painful realities to God's design. We want to attribute those painful realities to the root of sin in the world. So now that we're, we're seeing how the world was created and how the world was broken, why don't we start to ask, what does the gospel have to say about this? What does Jesus have to say about this? How does Jesus shape all of this? So I know that we're at the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 right up here. We're going to jump virtually almost all the way to the back, <laughs> all the way to the back of the Bible to Ephesians 5, uh, because I think here is where we begin to taste and see the gospel and how it shapes and how we understand this area. So, this passage is immediately, at, the, at face value, this passage is about marriage, but I do think that within this passage are the principles of manhood and womanhood. Uh, so, if you're not married, totally cool, stay with me. We're going to be all learning from this together. It's not just for men and women who are married, but I think this has something to show us about the nature of manhood and womanhood. So, the third thing we're going to see is manhood is defined and redeemed by the gospel. So, let's look at verse 25. We're going to read 25 through 30. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without, splot or, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one who ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. <clears throat> so it's obvious that what's going on here is that Paul is rooting the nature of manhood and womanhood, the nature of manhood, specifically something about manhood in the person of Jesus Christ, in who Jesus is. And so what is it that is going on in Jesus? Uh, what is it about Jesus' love for the church that roots manhood? What is it about that? So... Because you see what's going on here. He says, in the same way husbands love your wives, as Christ loved the church. So he's trying to draw something out of what Jesus is doing for who men are supposed to be. So in that verse, you're going to see there's a lot of so that, so that, so that. But I want us to, I want us to focus on verse uh, 27. So that he might, so this is Jesus why does Christ love the church? Christ loved the church so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. So that she might be holy and without blemish. So Jesus, Jesus' love for the church, Jesus' embodiment of masculinity for the church, something that, that Paul is trying to root us in here, is seeking to accomplish something that is entirely serving the church. He is trying to serve the church He's trying to accomplish something with the church. He's trying to do something for the church. He is taking on the responsibility of doing something for the church. And so it's this posture of Jesus eagerly trying to accomplish something in the church that I think Paul is trying to ground us in. Paul is saying Jesus loves the church and Jesus is trying to produce holiness and glory in the church. And it's that posture, this responsibility of Jesus for the church his eager desire for the church to grow, that he is trying to root masculinity in because you see there's nothing in here about what Jesus gets from the church. There's nothing in here about what Jesus gets from the church that's going to serve him. It's all about what Jesus is doing for the church. He's taking a responsibility for the church. He is postured towards the church because he loves her. He cares about her. He wants her to grow and flourish and thrive. You see that right there? He says, as he's applying it to husbands, he nourishes and cherishes. He loves the church. We see that it's not just kind of like this like dutiful posture towards the church. Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. 
There's a joyful disposition that Jesus has towards the church, taking on the responsibility for the church that he is trying to root our masculinity in. And so, as it applies to men, as this applies to men for our trying to think about what does it mean to be a man, what does manhood mean, I just want to, I want to throw out a definition. You guys can judge if this is going to be helpful or not. So, let me propose a definition of masculinity. Masculinity, masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Masculinity is the glad assumption, the taking on, the ownership. The glad assumption, and it's gladly done. It's an assumption that's gladly done with joy because it's not just kind of like this dutiful, you know, like stiff upper lip British, I'm just going to make this happen. It's a glad assumption. Let me take this on. Glad assumption of sacrificial laying down your life like Jesus laid down his life for the church. See that in verse 25, Jesus, as he loved the church and gave himself up for her, this love, this disposition, this assumption of responsibility sacrifices itself for the sake of, and growth of another. This glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility because there is something to be accomplished, there is a mission to be done, there is a glory to be enjoyed, and that responsibility is embraced and owned by men. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't happen to women, but I'm saying specifically, masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. So as this applies to Jesus, Jesus gladly assumed the responsibility of laying down his life so that the church, his bride, could be made holy and good and enjoy eternal fellowship with God himself. He gladly assumed that so that he could accomplish this great end of the church knowing and loving God. So this, this posture of masculinity isn't servile and what can I get out of this and go get me my sandwich and fetch the coffee. It's none of that. It's initiative. It's proactive. It's bearing responsibility. It's oriented towards the needs of others. It's glad and happy about embracing responsibility. It doesn't get an email asking, to, asking you to do something and it's kind of like, oh, gracious. I guess I'll make this happen because somebody's got to. No, it's a glad embracing of responsibility to serve and love and cherish other people as they grow in Christ. And so this view of masculinity does not depend on whether you have a wedding ring on or not. This, this review of masculinity is the disposition of the male heart towards those around him. So in terms of like a negative example, what does it mean to not be a man? We don't have to go very far in the Bible to find examples of that. You can find Abram, who was afraid for his life and for the sake of saving his own neck. He said, all right, I've got this beautiful wife. Uh, she's going to tempt other people so, because she's so beautiful. Other people are going to want to get married to her so that in order to get married to her, they're going to kill me. And so to save my wife, I'm going to have her play herself off as, as my sister. And he put his wife in danger. Put his wife in danger for the sake of his own neck. That is not the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. So we don't have to go far to see negative examples of what not to do. He did not assume the responsibility of caring for his wife. He let it go. And positive examples. I don't know what comes to your guys' mind. There are certainly lots of examples we could point to, even within our church, of the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility in men. One of them... One of the ones that always comes to my mind is um, a pastor I knew, and um, the details are not important, but what happened is effectively his wife began to have a mental breakdown. And his wife began um, to have a mental breakdown that was very disruptive to the local church. And there was nothing sinful going on. There was nothing that anybody was doing that uh, required him to be let go from being a pastor. Um, but his first call was to love his wife and to lay his life down for his wife. And so, even though this man was one of the most gifted pastors I've ever known, he stepped down from pastoral ministry and moved his family to another city so that his wife could be in a better mental place, so that she could flourish in Christ, so that she could grow, even at the expense of his own aspirations for ministry, even at the expense of his own success in ministry, he, the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility, his first call was to his wife. And I just want you guys to know, my first call here 
is not to King's Cross Church. My first call is to my wife. I was married before this church began, and if this church continues, uh, Lord willing, we live long enough where I will continue to be married after I've retired in 50 years, you know? <laughs> but the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility means laying your life down, men, laying your life down so that the women and other people around you can flourish, so they can grow, so that they can, tra- they can be transformed into the image of Christ. So just a few, a few thoughts on the, how this applies to men. I don't know what comes to mind, and I don't know what your experience is with masculinity, but I hope what you're seeing here, this, this definition of masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. It depends nothing, absolutely nothing, on personality. It depends nothing on capabilities. It depends nothing on body size. It depends nothing upon how, uh, what your interests are, whether you like sports, whether you don't like sports, whether you read Harry Potter, whether you don't read Harry Potter, whether you know how to pronounce the Patriots' names correctly or whether you don't. It depends nothing on that. This is, an, this is the call of what God has given men as their role in the world. This is dependent on you as a man to, to fulfill this role and whatever capability God has given you. If you can read, if you can't read. If you know how to... You know, lead well if you don't know how to lead well. God has given this to you as your role to reflect his glory. And I think, as we're going to start, we're going to turn in a second to talk about what, is it, what does it mean for women to submit. What does that mean before we get to that? Let's just hold out first. Men are called to submit to their role. As we're going to be talking about submission, men, you are called to submit to this role. You are called to submit to God's design for you. So before we get to talking about what does submission mean and how that touches on a nerve for our culture, men, you are called to submit to what God has called you to do. God has called you to submit, to serve, to lay down your life with the, for the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility to see other people around you flourish, to be proactive and engaged and loving so that other people around you are flourishing. And let me just say, as, if, as we're talking about this, as we're talking about this category, and you are feeling, as I think any man as he begins to examine himself, if you're beginning to feel your own, I have failed in this category. Let me just confess. Men, I, I fail this all the time. How many times have Michelle and I been in, a, in an argument, and I just go stone, dead, dead quiet because I'm going to try to, I'm going to silent treat her out of this. I'm just going to, I'm just going to silent treat this argument where I win. That is the, that, that is the, that is sinning against, that is hoisting off this masculine call of the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. So I, I must repent of all the ways I have failed in this category. And so must you. But the hope that we have here is that we are talking about here in verse 25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he, she might be holy and without blemish. Before we start saying, husbands, orient yourself towards your wife. No, men, God has oriented himself towards you, towards your sin, towards your rebellion in this area, so that you, through Christ's love for you, you are his bride. He has given himself so that you will be forgiven of all your sins and receive the Spirit and be counted as holy and without blemish before Him so that you can find hope for God, hope in God, even in our failures to fulfill this role. The Gospel not only shapes how you think about masculinity, what is your call as a man, but it actually gives you the hope to fulfill the call. So you're forgiven for all the ways that you have offended against God in this area and find grace, God's eager, happy disposition, his smile to give you grace to help to obey him. Okay, so we have talked about the men and we have talked about what God has called men to be. So, let's look at the other side. Let's look at what God has said to women about this, what has God said for what Womanhood is defined as, so the fourth thing we're going to see here, womanhood is defined and redeemed 
by the gospel. So let's look at verse 22. Verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So here we get to this one word, submission, that is going to touch on a cultural nerve for us. But I want, before we get to talking about all that that means, I want to make, I, I want to, I want to pull something out of the, the original Greek text for us so that we can kind of see it in this picture here. So I, I want to point out that in verse 22, in the original Greek, wives submit, that word submit is not in verse 22. Now that might raise questions for you, but it's just the way Greek grammar works where they supply things. And so the point of that is that submit is supplied from verse 21, where Submission is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is a work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. And so, what that means, the wives submit to your husbands, it is a fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. It is a call of God, it is the grace of God in your life to submit to your husbands, or to the attitude of submission that is not culturally dependent. It is a, if it is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, then it is not culturally dependent. It is a fruit of the Holy Spirit because it is God's design for your life as a woman. It is an evidence of the Spirit's activity in your life to submit gladly to, the, to your husband. That is the dynamic of what Paul is saying here. So that's not to saying that submit shouldn't be here. It, it makes total sense for submit to be in this verse. What I just want to point out is that it is an evidence of the Spirit's work in, some, in a woman's life for her to submit to her husband. It is not just kind of like this cultural situation where Paul was trying to figure out the best option to make everybody happy. So the second thing we want to see here is that submission reflects a relationship to the gospel. So we're talking about submission. I know that submission can touch a nerve, but what Paul is saying here is he is, he is pointing submission, just as he did with men and their love and leadership, to Christ, there is a the dynamic of submission is painted in this broader, bigger picture of how the church orients to Christ. As a church submits to Christ. So you see where he says that? As a church submits to Christ, there in verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit, should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I want us to remember that the word helper, the way women were designed, is this word that God takes on himself to describe how he's going to give the woman to man as a helper, this essential ally in the mission of God. And so then what does it mean for the church to submit to Christ here? What is, what's going on there? Because if that's where, where Paul is grounding this, if Paul is saying the posture of submission is as the church is to Christ, what is... What is the call of the church? What exactly, how does the church submit to Christ? Now, I know that that's kind of a broad question, and I, we could probably get into that another time because there's a lot to say there, but I, I want to I drop down in John 14 real quick to give us a picture of what's going on. How does the church submit to Christ? I think John 14 gives us a clue, and we can then back into Ephesians 5 to help define, bring a definition here. So John 14, verse 12, truly, this is Jesus speaking, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So I think when he says whoever believes in me, he's defining the church. That's who the church is. People who believe in Jesus, who love Jesus, people who trust in Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will, they, will he do, because I am going to the Father. So their works are going to be greater than Jesus' works, and if your brain is not kind of doing some somersaults, you've got to, you've got to start asking some questions. How is it possible for the church to do greater works than Jesus Christ, who's done the greatest thing ever, to be the perfect man to die on the cross for sinners who hate him? I don't know if the church can do something like that, because we're all sinners, and we're so we're exempted from the first. We can't quite get there. I think what, what, what Jesus is saying here is not the church is going to submit itself for a sacrifice before God greater than what I'm going to do. That's not what Jesus has in mind here. It's the works 
that Jesus has in mind here. It is the extension, it's the expansion of who Jesus is. It's the expansion of the gospel through the ends of the earth that Jesus has in mind. Because the reality is, humanly speaking, at this point, the gospel for Jesus was pretty limited, right? It was in a little narrow strip of land on a very small plot of very contested land in the greater world. Like, it's not, everybody doesn't know about Jesus, right? So what Jesus has in view is the church, as it submits to Christ, will, will do greater works and expand the gospel further than the people that Jesus literally spoke to. So you understand what I'm saying here? Good? Okay. The gospel is going to expand to the ends of the earth. So that's the greater works that the church is called to. But I don't want to just I don't want to eject out too quickly. John 14, verse 15 and 16. If you love me, so again he's talking to the church, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. You see, Christ's leadership of the church, Christ's leadership of the church is tangible. He doesn't just say, well, go do all these works, and I'll see you on the other side. Jesus loves the church and gives us the Holy Spirit out of his glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. He equips the church. He empowers the church. He enables the church. He tangibly expresses his love to the church by giving the church the Holy Spirit and everything that we need to fulfill his mission. Now, I know you're beginning to say, okay, I thought we were talking about manhood and womanhood. How does this relate? I think what we see here is this relationship between Jesus and the church is where we should be grounding our understanding of what manhood and womanhood, specifically womanhood in this situation, is about. So what does it mean for a church to submit to Christ? The church submission to Christ is a glad responsiveness to his sacrificial leadership. The church loves to respond to this commission of Jesus. Jesus has said, go tell everybody about who I am and what I've done. And the church says, yes, let's make this happen. The church loves to do this. And I don't think I'm making any judge, I don't think I'm making any assumptions here, so you, you be the judge on this. But I think that that yes to Jesus and that embracing of the mission is pretty important to Jesus. It's pretty important. The work won't be accomplished. The work won't happen without that glad responsiveness to Jesus' sacrificial leadership the mission must be accomplished, but it can only be accomplished by the church coming alongside and, and saying yes to Jesus' mission. So I think if we could just take that, if that's the, the relationship between Jesus and the church, so there's no animosity there, everybody is enjoying the goodness of God in that relationship. If we just take that and we say, okay, Paul, if the call of submission is for women to respond to their, their husbands, for the feminine disposition to be similar. Let me just throw this out as a definition. The nature of femininity is the glad responsiveness to sacrificial leadership. So if you see if the, wor- if the church is said to be doing greater works than Jesus, I think we can at least say that the command of submission does not undermine the value of women's work and women's contribution to the glory of God. I dare say that there are many women in my life that do 10,000 times more important and more God-glorifying work than I do. I think that it is important to say that the, the work that women do is incredibly and massively important and often understated. So there's no dismissal of, of the importance of work, the importance of their value, but it is the role that, that God is trying to capture in, these, in this command as, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives who submit and everything to their husbands. I think the disposition, the feminine disposition that God has created women for is the glad responsiveness to sacrificial leadership. If you want a definition for submission, the glad responsiveness to sacrificial leadership. I think that is where Paul is wanting to ground us. And let me just make a comment because I, I know we're trying to, we're walking through some difficult terrain here. It's important to note that It's a glad responsiveness to sacrificial leadership. In no way does God ever command or expect women to submit to ungodly, abusive leadership. Ungodly and abusive husbands should be locked up. I'm just saying that the call here is to sacrificial leadership, to leadership that 
if you have on the one side the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility that seeks to cultivate and grow and nurture and flourish, on the other side for, for women, the glad responsiveness to sacrificial leadership, it is this beautiful dance that happens between men and women to accomplish great things for God, to accomplish great delight in God, to experience the joy of the gospel going forward. So, I don't want to get bogged down here, but let me just, let me just kind of make a few applications here, okay? Are we, is everybody okay? We're all, nobody's n- nodding out? Okay. I think a few applications here. Um, like we were saying, women's call to submission does not undermine their, the value of their work. But it does give us governance. It does give us some direction for how to understand how we live our life together in the church. And so that's why at King's Cross we don't have women elders because we think that eldership is specifically a masculine role within the church. But we do have women deaconesses or deacons because there's nothing about the role of deacon that's specifically called to be men. Eldership is distinctly masculine but men and women are called to fulfill their life together in a church. And I, and I would say that if you, if you go to a church that's thriving and growing, uh, you're going to see that the, the proactivity of women in the church is massively important. And I think it is to the church's shame that we do not draw enough attention to how women have made essential contributions in the church. I remember taking a church history class, and the professor rightly commented, he's like, unfortunately, uh, it's only in the last century that we've begun to really kind of look back and look for the role of women in the church because it's largely been, you know, look, how awesome is Augustine? Isn't he like the dude? He wrote the confessions. He's like awesome. And then you got, you know, who cares about the Middle Ages? You got Luther and Calvin. And then you got John Piper, right? That's church history, right? That's like, (laughs) I don't know why it would be like that, but there's all these women along the way that played essential roles to the end of slave trade, to the proclamation of the gospel, to the advance of mission that we just... I mean, how many of you have 10 women in your brain that have made massive contributions to the life of the church? And they have. If I can just make a guess, 50% of it, you know? Like you got men who are doing 50%, you got women who are doing 50%. I think that we should do a better job of exalting the role of women in the life of the church. That does not mean that we need to say that women should be elders, but that does mean that we need to do a good job of having women in front. So that's why for King's Cross Church here, I have try to think through what are the roles within our worship service that distinctly require men, elders to be involved. And then everything else is like open doors for everybody else in the church. And so that's why we had Jen pray today. That's why we had Rachel read the scriptures today. There's nothing about that function within our life of the church that gives governance and direction for the church. So that's why we want to have as many women as up, up here as possible. And, and part of cultivating the women in life of our church I don't know why, but for whatever reason, um, women have not been encouraged, as far as I have seen, to grow and enrich theological truths. I mean, so I think that what's being held out here is our roles. There's nothing about capacity. There's nothing about uh, uh, acumen for theological truth. There's nothing here in Scripture about women really shouldn't try to understand the deep things of God. I think that the call here is for men and women to know and enjoy God. I remember uh, we were at our last church. There were all these college guys who were being super ambitious for God, and they are going to read through Grudem's systematic theology, and they were whining and complaining about how hard it was. And here is my wife at home who blew through it in like a few months and just like read through the whole Grudem systematic theology and put all these boys to shame and I think that we should have more of those women in the church. Women, you should read Grudem's Systematic Theology. You should read the rich truths of God to grow in understanding who God is. That has nothing to do with what it means to be a woman or to be feminine. I think it actually enhances your call for uh, the glad responsiveness to sacrificial leadership so that you can tell when guys are being stupid and ungodly, so you can tell when doctrine is being upheld rightly. So you can support and encourage the good development and building of the church. So I'm going to get off a bit of that stump right there. So you can tell this is important to me. 
I think this is really important. I would to God that all the women in our church either matched or outstripped the theological education of all the men in the church. I, I would die a happy man. Women, let's make it happen, okay? Okay, we've talked about the 50% who are men. We've talked about the 50% who are women. Let's land this ship, okay? How does that sound, guys? All right. What, what does God have to say about the whole of humanity? How does this both man, manhood and womanhood, how do those fit together? Human, so the fifth thing we're going to see, humanity is defined and redeemed by the gospel. So we don't just want to hold out these biblical principles and say, make it happen, and isn't this great? Uh, because that's just going to be uh, oppressive, and it's not going to give us the full heart. I think there's a, there's a deeper element to this that God wants us to enjoy together. So I want us to get there. So, let's look. If you have your Bibles open, if Philippians 2 is just, it should just be a couple pages over. It'll be on the screen here. Philippians 2, verse 5 through 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was the, in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, Okay, here is one of the rich truths, the deep truths of Scripture. We see here in this verse the Son of God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity. You have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You have God the Son who did not count His equality with God. So they were of one substance, one God, three persons, and the Son of God did not count that equality as something to be grasped onto, to be held onto, to be defended. It was true and good, and the equality was real. There was equality between God the, Father, God the Father, God the Son, and Holy Spirit, but yet God the Son said, I will gladly submit to God the Father. I will gladly submit to God the Father's design. God the Father was eager to save us from our sins, and God the Son eagerly wanted to realize that mission so you see here in the Trinity itself, the headship and submission is established in the relationship between the persons of the Trinity. God the Father leading, eager to lead, eager to set the mission, eager to see things realized so that God is glorified. And God the Son eager to make that mission happen. God the Son taking on that mission as His own to make it realized and to enjoy the good design of God. And so He took on flesh he took on a body. He took on our body. He took on a body so that he could fulfill the Father's demands, the Father's commands, the Father's eager desire to save men and women. He took on a body so that he could live a perfect life as a man in perfect obedience to God. He took on a body so that he could live a life that we could never, ever, ever live he took on this body so that he could fulfill the purposes of God, so that God would be glorified, so that God would be known. He took on this body so that he could die in our place, so that he could die for our sins, so he could die for all the ways that men and women have abused and sinned and violated each other, and all the ways that they have abused and sinned and violated the glory of God. Jesus Christ the Son of God, equal in value and worth, took on a body so that he could submit himself to the will of God. You see, here in the Gospel, here in the Gospel do we see the roles of headship and submission established without blemish, without diminishing of value, without the violation of equality. You see, in the Gospel itself, we see God the Son submitting in total equality with God the Father, submitting in role to God the Father. So there, there is our ultimate picture of headship and submission of manhood and womanhood. There is total equality between men and women. There is not one way in which men and women are better than each other. But you see in this submission of the Father and the, of the Son to the Father, there is a, a divine dance 
that shows the glory of God. And in the relationship between men and women, there is a divine dance that shows the glory of God, that displays the goodness of God, so that the splendor of who God is is seen. And so, what's land? Ephesians 5, verse 31 Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it reflects, it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see, as Paul has in mind this great glory of Christ and the church, of Christ leading with glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility and the wife and the church responding and the glad responsiveness to sacrificial leadership. In this picture, Paul takes it and applies it to our marriages and says, this displays the glory of the gospel. The gospel is seen in how we relate to each other. The gospel is known and enjoyed. The gospel of who God is in Jesus Christ is delighted in, and it's witness to the, to the world. I think that as we're talking about being missional in our neighborhoods, men and women, single, married, we have the opportunity to show the gospel in receiving the grace of God to be obedient to these dispositions, in re- receiving the grace of the gospel to respond to these roles so that men in our church gladly serve and love and cherish the people around them, their family and neighbors, whether they're elders or not, men can gladly assume the sacrificial responsibility for seeing human life flourish around them. And women can gladly, and with great articulation and clarity of mind and expansiveness of heart, they can glorify God in eager responsiveness, glad responsiveness to sacrificial leadership, to support godly leadership, to realize godly leadership. And our marriages can display the goodness of God and the glory of God in the gospel and how we, if we are trying to silent treat each other or how we are offending each other in our marriages, we can, by the gospel, grow in the grace of Christ to love and serve each other in these unique ways so that as our marriages interact with our neighbors around us, they see that these, this couple, they, they love each other, even though I, I know they got in an argument last week. They, they care about each other, even though their kids are difficult. They, they are tender towards each other in a way that only reflects the tenderness of Christ for us. So let me just kind of end here. Let me just end by holding out this reality that nothing of what we said, remember the principles in practice, I hope that we have driven at the principles of Scripture here. I want us to get virtually only the principles of Scripture on this category because we have said nothing about who works outside of the home, who works in the home, what clothes do you wear, what chores are done, what sports you like, who, t- who watches the kids, who takes out the trash. We've done nothing talking about any of that housekeeping stuff, the practices stuff. We, we can talk about that stuff as long as the day is long. And let's ask for God's wisdom for how we apply these principles, but let's hold firmly to the principles. We want the principles to govern us. The principles of Scripture are going to guide us in being obedient to God. The practices, man, we, let's talk about that stuff. That's great. Okay, so remember, I, any questions, guys? I know this is going to raise questions. There's, there's texts of Scripture that we did not get to. Let's ask questions about that. I, we can do Q&A afterwards uh, because I want us to get this clear, and I know it's going to raise questions, and so I want to invite your input um, because I don't want this just to be a monologue. But what I do want us to get, what I hope you get here, we can trust this good design of God for manhood and womanhood because it only, not only displays the gospel, but our hope for change in manhood and womanhood is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ himself at the end of the day, it is Jesus Christ as he, re- as he is revealed in Scripture who defines 
gender who defines our sexuality and gives us the grace to enjoy God's good design for both men and women. Amen? Okay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself in Scripture. We ask that you would help us, God, by your Spirit to think through these things, to understand this category, and to be obedient to your word so that we would enjoy you and glorify you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.